This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. I'm Becky Parker Geist and I'm your host. Audiobook Connection is your place to learn about the audiobook creative process in discussions between the authors, narrators, producers, and post-production teams that bring them all together, as well as guests who have listened to the audiobooks and have questions for the creative teams. This podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. I have with me today Joan Knuckles-Wilson, the author of The Book of Timothy, The Devil, My Brother, and Me, a memoir, and Tim Knuckles, Joan's brother, whose story is being told. Joan Knuckles-Wilson is a writer and a senior assistant attorney general for the state of Alaska. She has served the state of Alaska in both a civil and criminal capacity for more than half of her 25-year legal career. And Tim was the first of Father John Baptist Ormache's victims to come forward and the only one to do so publicly. As president and owner of Pure Soul, Inc., he advises Morgan Stanley on the pricing and execution of euro-dollar options and trades on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Joan and Tim, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. So, Joan, let's start with you. First of all, how did it feel hearing this very personal story being told in another voice? It felt like I was listening to someone else's story. And I have to tell you, when I listened, even though I wrote it, Maria was so compelling, I wanted to know what happened next. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> it was a debate as a writer whether to provide it in my own voice, which you know a lot of memoirists say they like to do. But once I was able to listen to Maria and hear her capture not only me, but Tim, but the myriad of side characters, I mean, her ability to differentiate and tell a story through voice alone. That's something that is remarkable, something that is nowhere within my bandwidth. So the answer is 100% happy. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. And so, Tim, did listening to the audiobook of this story, did that allow you to experience it differently than you had before? Yeah, like I said, I, I listened uh, briefly just to uh, sort of summarize myself and understand uh, exactly what audio rendition would come through as and i sort of agree with joan although unfortunately i lived it i think it uh, helped me a little bit actually to i don't know it, it got my round my, my mind into more of being in joan shoes mm. you know from her being the author obviously if i went to rome the ending would have been different <laughs> but um outside of that it was uh i, I I loved it. It, it, was, it was really interesting. So. And so I want to just ask a few questions, if I may, about, you know, your history that is told in this story. But were you aware at the time of the abuse of other boys being in your situation? That's a really good question. You know, 
at the time, I, I think when, I mean, I was very young, you know, when it started, it was uh, almost a four-year span, you know, just before, like, in, in mostly grade school, and then maybe a touch into uh, my freshman year of high school. But most of it was, I, I, I think uh, the monster sort of knew that uh, I was onto him. I was staying away from home. Unfortunately, it was to, you know, drink alcohol and and uh, dabble in drugs just to sort of shelter from the pain. But uh, I think, I don't know if I really thought about the other boys at the time. You know, obviously, two were actually very good friends of mine. And that's just how different maybe boys, you know, that are being hurt tend to stay quiet. Uh, they don't want to, you know, the, the, they don't want their peers to know, their, you know, their friends mm -hmm. to know that things sexually is, is happening to them. Right. So unfortunately, you know, it, uh, you keep it to yourself. I wish it, it could have been different. You know, we could have all gotten together back then. And, you know, once I told my parents and unfortunately didn't believe me, only because of, you know, the trouble I was causing, they thought I was essentially just right. making up an excuse mm -hmm. because of all the trouble I was in. But, I mean, the abuse caused the trouble. Right. And, I mean, it's almost impossible if, if your parents, if you can't even talk to your parents, how, how are you going to talk to your friends? Right, right. Yeah, no, that it makes sense. Okay, can I add in there that groomers count yeah. on that? I mean, that's their modus at operandi to isolate mm. children and make them feel first like they're the only one in the world that deserves this attention. And second, that nobody's going to believe you if you come forward. Right. So I remember sitting in the car driving Tim and one of the other boys to high school, looking at the back seat. You know, they were probably going through it at the exact same time and had no mm -hmm. idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's helpful, I think, for for those that we hope will become attentive to recognize that fact, I think. And can you tell us, like, how did the abuse begin? I think once my, my dad was working for the church as um, uh, the head maintenance, and obviously the abuse began with the working, getting through my dad and making sure that... Uh, my dad was comfortable working there and paying him well. And, you know, he basically uh, had, you know, six kids that were looking to go through Catholic school, which is extremely expensive. And on Chicago firefighters pay back then, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine how he did that. But that's where uh, JB came in. He, he established, you know, payments to these Catholic schools for us. Mm -hmm. So there's the grooming right there. Right. You know, take some of the uh, financial burden away from the family. You know, automatically you're you're deemed a friend. You know, come to dinner and things like that. I don't think the abuse actually started at my house. It mm -hmm. started at the church as an altar boy. You know, where you know he would or in his office. You know, he closed the door and start to hug me and kiss me. And then, you know, I was extremely uncomfortable. 
I don't un understand how he thought I was enjoying myself. You know, I was more or less just a piece of meat, just yeah. a security blanket to him is the only way I can think of it. And then once, you know, he started to get a little bit more aggressive and come to the house and, and close my bedroom door and, and sit in my room for, it felt like hours. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it was hours. You know, it just, he just wanted to get over. You know, I don't even know if any words were said. I don't remember. You know, I, I just yeah. turned into a, I don't know, yeah, just an object. Right. And yeah. It's hard to explain, I think. Yeah. yeah. Had you blocked out the memory of the abuse for a time? Or, because I know that can happen, but, or was it always present with you? I have a feeling I have. You know, some of the things that, you know, some of the touching was definitely uh, a little bit more than I probably portrayed. But uh, it's just my way of, you know, getting through and, and living my life. Yeah, yeah. And, and Becky, in my research and review, I don't really think the boys block it out. I think they compartmentalize. Mm. You know, in, in our block of who we are as humans, you take this block and you diminish it. So I think they always carry it with them. And that's how people survive in a variety of ways, either never talking about it or going into the box. Right, yeah. And... So at that moment when you knew you had to speak out, can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I, my wife had just told me that, uh, you know, we're finally uh, pregnant, you know, and we were trying for a while, you know, we were actually going through uh, forms of, uh, what's it called? Um, Hormone uh, therapy or? Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and things like that. And, you know, we were having some issues uh, early on, but, uh, you know, once, once it, uh, she told me she was pregnant and, uh, you know, that's, it was maybe just timing, you know, mm -hmm. maybe God's way of saying, you know, you have to do something. Because, uh, I was boys in, uh, Boston. Uh, it was a huge article. You couldn't help, but it was everywhere. It was on the newspaper. It's national news. And, uh, I knew I couldn't be a good father if I didn't try to get that guy, that monster away from kids. Yeah. That was my one job. And I wasn't going to fail. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And that's it. <laughs> also for all that you have been doing and, you know, and going through as a part of making a difference in the world for many children. So, Joan, let's go over to you. And, you know, you've, you've done a lot of research, obviously, in preparation for this book. And, and also in thinking about your own family and what, from your perspective, what do you wish your parents had noticed? And, and Tim, I'll ask you this afterwards, but what, what do you wish that your parents or family had noticed and what do you wish they had done about it? I'm still trying to figure this out, Becky, how the children of our parish knew something was off with this guy, but our parents, the teachers, the nuns seemed oblivious to it. Mm -hmm. And I just recall him coming out to the 
playground during our recess when we were at grammar school and the glint in his eye when he was around boys and the way he pulled them into these bear hugs, you know, pretending to be jostling. But combine that with what looked like sexual pleasure. Now, I was a 13-year-old girl. I didn't know what that was. But, it, you know, I saw my right. parents hug each other right. and love each other. It kind of looked like that. Mm. And then probably the mm-hmm. biggest thing for me, which has been, you know, what I've spent my good 20 years of my life doing is... um that closed bedroom door, I, I, you know, I close my eyes and I can see it. And how a parent ever thought that was okay, even a 1970s parent, is, is one I still haven't found a good answer to. So those are, the, those are the two things. And I remember talking to my dad about, you know, I, I think this guy is a little off. And and he's like, oh, he's just, you know, got a lot of love for Jesus. That's why he's off. Hmm. Tim, anything you would want to add? I think, uh, I mean, obviously, like up until I think sixth grade. So fifth grade is, you know, too early. I was a, uh, a very good athlete. I was a, a decent student. And then sixth grade, I was drinking, doing, not doing drugs yet, but drinking. Getting into trouble, my grades absolutely nosedived. I was staying out until one o'clock in the morning because I saw his car parked in front of my house on school days. If you think about sixth grade, I was what is that? Twelve. Twelve, 12, 12 years old. 13. Yeah. Twelve years old on a school night, staying out until twelve thirty, one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Drinking beer in a field. By yourself. With probably waiting, some missing beer waiting. from the house. Sorry, uh, waiting for that car to leave so you can go to bed and go to school. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I would assume my, I'm a parent now. I would notice that. <laughs> I don't understand how that's not noticed. Right. Big shift in. Um, right there. Okay. That should have been an absolute, you know, just. Yeah. I think if I was going to mentor, you know, parents on, you know, what to look for, yeah, that's exactly what to look for. If if your kid starts reacting in in ways that he wasn't doing three months ago, sit him down and find out what's going on. Right. If he says nothing, you know, believe him. But if he says something, believe him again. And kind of the greatest irony of that situation was as Tim was getting more troubled, they brought the priest in to counsel him and relieve the trouble. So oh dear. the source of the trouble was brought into the bedroom. Wow. That's like mm-hmm. double intensity. It's like throwing gasoline on a fire. Right. Joan, I know that both of your parents had died before this book came out. Did you have the ability to share it with them? Because it's been a labor of love, you know, for this book, I shouldn't call it. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the subject of, is not, but working on it for so long. Yes. So my mother read it in a couple of days, wrote me a beautiful note as she was reading it. She had still some limitations with being able to grasp the subject. And I could kind of talk about that, about my mother had a 
good ability to excise things in order for it to fit the narrative. My father spent the last 10 years of his life in a living penance for denying his own son. And health condition after health condition led to his eventual death. But I do know my mother would tell me he would take the manuscript and his vision was fading and take a magnifying glass and read it. I'm not sure he finished it, but, and I, and he never actively talked to me about it, but knowing how they were during the journey, you know, my effort to go to Rome to find this guy, I have no, we have his support. And I know that you reference in the acknowledgments that you've forgiven them for their complicity. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Tim's got a good answer to this, too. He was much uh, kinder than I was. Forgiveness comes, I think, in part being a parent yourself and realizing you spend this effort trying to do the best you can for your child. You know, right now with modern technology, what is my daughter exposed to every time she picks up her phone? You know, that that's one of my, my biggest fears. Right. Forgiveness comes in not being able to call your mom and ask how her day is going or your dad and how he's feeling. Forgiveness comes in realizing that while they were complicit, the very reason Tim could make his name public and I could go to Rome is because they created us. You know, they taught us what it means to stand up for what you believe in and gave us through a loving home, at least through them, the strength of self to be who we are. So I haven't forgiven the act of leaving my brother to be laid waste to. But I have forgiven the people that have given me the gift of life. And Tim, do you want to respond to that? The difference between forgiveness, if I was going to say forgiveness that comes from the church, uh, the archdiocese, and, uh, and passionless priests, came in the form of a letter and on the uh, typed out my name, they spelled it wrong. Their letter of forgiveness didn't spell my name. So that's the form of apology that they render. The apology from my parents is uh, completely different. It's looking in my eyes and saying, I'm so sorry. That's all they had to do. I forgave them instantly. I just wanted to hear it. They said it. They meant it. And I love them. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. Getting your memoir into audio can be a delicate process best treated with a nurturing and supportive approach. Many authors assume that when a memoir is recorded, it needs to be in the author's voice. And while sometimes that is best, it is not always the best option. 
At Pro Audio Voices, we'll work through that decision with you and support you in the production process whichever way you choose. If you decide to narrate, we set you up for success with a range of options, from having an audio engineer and director on the line for every recording session, to getting you properly set up for recording on your own. If we hire a professional narrator, we'll make sure the voice is the right fit for you and your memoir. At Pro Audio Voices, your story is important to us. Let's inspire the world together. And if the reader would compare that with the forgiveness, with the apology, I should say, Ormache offered to me, you know that that wasn't, had no heart behind it. Yeah, I'm not a glass of spilt milk. You are not. Mm-hmm. No. What would you like to say to other children or their parents or guardians who may be either in a position where there is some concern about an abusive situation that may be happening? Is there something that you would like to, let's start off with other young people. What would you like to say to them? It would be hard to, I mean, I work with special needs. I think that's maybe secretly one of the reasons I work with special needs is I'm terrified of things like this. And if you don't have a voice, you know, a lot of autistics don't verbalize. And uh, it's real easy to abuse somebody like that because they don't know how to tell them to stop and they don't know how to ask for help. So I think that's one of the reasons I actually started doing that just to be that safeguard. But others, obviously, my, my first thing would, you know, find an adult you trust and explain to them what's going on. If they don't believe them, if they don't believe you, shake them, rattle them, make them listen, ask them for help. They still don't help, then find somebody else and keep looking. Never stop. Joan, you you had made a point about your parents raising you in a way that allowed you to be able to speak out. Obviously, you know, some time went by before, you know, Tim, you were in a position where you felt you could. But even now, being able to speak out as an adult. I mean, yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying. Like hindsight... If I didn't tell my parents and I told my Uncle Dan, it would have been over mm-hmm. in 10 minutes, literally. I mean, that you just got to find the right person. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you're scared of your dad or you're scared of your mom, then find that uncle, find that family member that you trust. And I think that's why his death, you know, I know it impacted me, but you must have felt completely alone when we lost him. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was ready to end it after that. So for parents... What I'm hearing is helping your kids, helping make sure that your kids have some trusted adult in their lives that is not the parent themselves, because that can be intimidating. It can be just too scary, regardless of the relationship. There should always be at least one other trusted person. I think that's that's a fair bit of advice. 
And right now I'm parenting a 13 year old, you know, and there are things I know she doesn't want to talk to me about. So um, having a safe harbor and really ensure that that person (laughs) is a safe harbor is truly, right, truly a safe harbor. Yeah. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. Clearly, the child should have a say in or is a safe harbor is only going to be a safe, truly safe harbor if the child feels safe with that person. And so I'm making sure that that's part of it. And Becky, I mean, your questions make a good point, which is this is still going on. Right. And I I think because, you know, this the the Catholic scandal, you know, hit its hit its uh, height in 2002 with this Boston Spotlight article and the church came out with the Dallas charter. People think, oh, this is yesterday's problem. It's not yesterday's problem. It's right. still today's problem. And Tim and I can tell you that from at being on tour with our book, the people who come up to us in private and still talk about it. So, And sadly, it's not a problem that is only within the Catholic Church. Right. right. Any abusive situation, you know, they can come in all forms and all places, all kinds of relationships. So I think that this, the message here is so important. And if someone within the Catholic Church were listening, what would you like them to know? Joan, you want to? My answer is going to be different than Joan's. Go ahead. Okay. All right. Let's hear from both of you. Go ahead, Joan. Victims, and I use, let me restate that, people who've been victimized by priests, because people are not victims. People survive this. And the people that love them, I know this from my ongoing effort to re- try to remain Catholic, we're not wanted anymore. We're the, aren't you done with this? We're the stain that they try to cover up with a really nice carpet, you know, new Catholics who don't have this history. They should realize that every time you go to mass and you hear a prayer for a priest and the vocation, and you don't hear a equally compelling prayer for victims, you're being re-victimized. So if anyone were to listen. When I'm apologetic for things I do wrong, I get on my knees everything I can without, you know, if a person's willing to accept me and don't give up. Know that, you know, you still want to feel loved. I always call myself the Catholic clinging to the edge of a window. I still want someone to pull me a little back in to say I'm still worth having. And nobody's done that. And that's why I can only enter Catholic churches alone, because I know nobody is there. So that's my answer of a person who still tries to be Catholic. I guess in a layman's Catholics, you know, understanding of God and the church, and then their people, and then Satan, and then Satan's people. Mine is God the people, Satan, the church, is under Satan. They have to get through Satan to get to the people. God's out of their reach. As far as I'm concerned, the entire Catholic uh, archdiocese is a drug cartel. Their only scheme is to make money. The richer and more power they get, the better. I am very happy to be done with them. I'm very happy that they will never sink their claws into my my boys. 
I've completely washed my hands of them. I have the strongest relationship with God now that I've ever had before in my life. I basically took out, they think they consider themselves the middleman. I've fired the middleman. My relationship with God is my own. I could be mad at my God. I can you know, swear at my God, you know, but uh, that's a healthy relationship. I don't need anyone else getting in the way. And I just feel I'm a better man having that ability. Obviously, I don't feel, you know, any ill will towards, you know, people that remain Catholic. Of course, I'm friends with a million of them, or not a million, you know what I mean, though. Uh, a lot of them. Yeah. I don't uh, yeah. think badly about them. If they go to church and they want to raise their family like that, go ahead. You know, that's that's not my place. It's not my family. Uh, if mm-hmm. my boys said, I, you know what, I want to go to church, I would let them. I don't see that happening, but, uh, you know, obviously Papa Bear is, uh, has his eyes on, on them, but uh, it would be a completely different story. Like I said, that, that's just the way I feel about them. I, I, I feel cleaner without them. They, they, yeah. they don't want me back. <laughs> they, they, they could be for less. Mm-hmm. I suspect your answers are going to be quite different on this one, too. Do you think the Catholic Church is redeemable? No, absolutely not. Not, not with the current leadership. You know, they're, they're, they continue. I, I, they continue. I mean, my abuser has a room with a view in Rome. That's punishment. As far as, you know what happens to pedophiles in Illinois, downtown Chicago? It's a little different yeah, that aren't story once, once they get to jail. That's yep. where they belong. So yeah, I mean that—that's the difference yeah. between a pedophile priest and a pedophile. Mm-hmm. And Joan, one of the reasons I still call myself a Catholic is uh, there's something about saying the words about Jesus Christ that people of the first century said that things that Peter or Paul taught to small congregations are things I can still read. 2,000 years later. And my favorite story is always the angry Jesus, the the Jesus who goes into his father's temple and sees the merchants and lays into them. And to me, that's what Jesus has to do to the Catholic Church. And the current leadership is not listening. And I agree with Tim, irredeemably can't listen. But as I recount in the book, you know, the early Christian church and I use Christian and not Catholic in that setting, women had a voice, slaves had a voice. Anyone who could believe in the miracle of this person who died for us had a voice. If the Catholic Church can go back to the first century Catholic Church, it's redeemable. And there's the saying in the Bible, you know, all things are possible with God. So I have to believe that. Do I think it'll happen in my lifetime or my daughter's lifetime? No. Do, do I think the odds of it happening are high? No, they're very, very low. But I'm not going to give up the hope of it. And so your book leaves us back in 2012. Is there anything that you would like your listeners to know about your journeys going forward or 
any changes that you see taking place that are encouraging or any lack of change you find discouraging? What are you, what are you seeing now? Tim, you want to go first on that? Well, I have to say, and this is completely off subject, but I am beyond happy that the Cubs have won the World Series because (laughs) I I end the book four years before that happened. And as a lifetime fan, nothing can, you know, replace that. And that's why it's mentioned in my acknowledgments that I'm a joyous Cubs fan. Since 2012, the parts of the journey that I think are important is, you know, I end the book at, at a graveside for my dog named after my grandfather. And I'm praying in that moment for a God who will be able to help me teach my child the boundless love I once received from the Catholic Church. And I can tell you that, you know, that's happening, that I have a, a daughter that is stronger than I am, has resilient faith, not only in God, but in herself. And I'm grateful every single day for that. As for my journey with the Catholic Church, you know, I I mentioned, I think in the epilogue that you might see me sneaking in for Mass, and that's happened a couple times. But interestingly, this book's book tour has separated me even more from the Catholic Church. And probably the kind of the keenest event is when I walked in St. Aloysius Gonzaga's church on Gonzaga University Chapel, and the church was empty. And I went up to the altar for the Virgin Mary, and I found a book of prayers for the deceased. And that book of prayers contained the names of about 10 Jesuit child predators. This was last month. They have no hope. They have no heart. So I said I'm clinging to the little edge, but I'm about to fall off. That said, I'm falling onto soft ground. Because as Tim says, I just need to cut off the middleman. My relationship with God is stronger than ever. And it is really, really it's very true. It's it's warm. It's warming and uh I, I feel loved. You know, all I have to do is, is look at the pictures in my house and you know, my my two incredible boys uh, and my wife. You know, God had a plan. You know, he figured out that happy ending for me. I thank him for it. Again, this is Joan Knuckles Wilson, author of The Book of Timothy, The Devil, My Brother and Me, a memoir, and Tim Knuckles, Joan's brother, whose story is being told. The audiobook is narrated by Maria Marquis. And visit joanknuckleswilson.com for more information. Joan and Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today and for all your willingness to be vulnerable and for all that you're doing in the world. Thank you. Thank you, Becky. You're welcome, and thank you for helping this story continue, Becky. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Audiobook Connection, behind the scenes with the creative teams. Please take a moment to subscribe at audiobookconnection.com. The podcast is sponsored by Pro Audio Voices, helping great stories come alive through audiobook production and marketing. Learn more at proaudiovoices.com. Again, thanks for being with us, and please join us next week.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>